So uh, to give you a sense of where we're going, uh, there'll be a few introductory remarks. And then uh, the core of the, the talk will be about five underlying issues that come up if we want to talk about uh, moral enhancement, virtue, transhumanism, those kinds of issues. Uh, you can see the five there. We'll be going through them in order. Uh, and then at the end, we'll ask a question of, can we engineer uh, virtue using uh, things like CRISPR gene editing? And then finally, some possible virtues that transhumanists, posthumanists might want to uh, consider. So given that this is a series on uh, evolution of the human species, the challenge of transhumanism and posthumanism, I just wanted to sort of situate where my work and what we're exploring tonight fits in. Um, so it's difficult to really speak for transhumanists or posthumanists uh, because there are lots of them and there isn't a monolithic uh, position there. So uh, I'm just going to give some basic definitions that sort of hold um, but are not necessarily ideologically what every person who would identify as these would, would necessarily ascribe to. So for transhumanism, uh, the trans there would sort of be transformation in motion, but not, not a complete fulfillment of, let's say. Uh, so this would be the modification of existing human nature or traits, uh, perhaps introducing new traits uh, into our DNA, DNA our genome, or um, our bodies. And this could also include the incorporation of mechanical or cybernetic implants. Uh, whereas posthumanism would sort of take that movement uh, to its fulfillment to say that uh, we are going to actually move from Homo sapiens sapien to at least one, perhaps more, uh, post-human species. And we would do this by taking control of human evolution through a variety of tools, uh, including gene editing. Uh, and this could be giving up biological bodies completely, uh, moving to a synthetic or mechanical body, uh, or to get rid of bodies altogether. Uh, through a process called uh, mind uploading, where we would uh, scan our brain patterns and uh, exist as digital beings. Now, there are actually strong scientific questions about whether or not mind uploading is possible currently or ever possible, but there are proponents uh, who are, are pushing for this. So I feel it's important to at least uh, bring up conceptually uh, as a possibility. And so part of this is to say that not all transhumanists want to be uh, post-human. Um, different people are going to draw the line in different places. So if we're going to talk about transhumanism, then that ultimately we're really talking about uh, human enhancement in some ways. And so to give us a sort of a baseline definition of what that might mean, let's look at uh, Nick Bostrom, um, philosopher from Oxford, and he defines uh, enhancement as, quote, an intervention that improves the functioning of some subsystem of an organism beyond its reference state or that creates an entirely new functioning or subsystem that the organism previously lacked. So uh, there's really no exhausted list as to what, what that could entail. Uh, enhancement could be all sorts of things. Um, could be uh, improving your senses. It could be improving, uh, like we'll be talking about today, moral capacities. It could be in improving uh, physical strength. Uh, so really the constraints are sort of imagination and what science can currently do. But tonight uh, we'll be focusing on the category of moral enhancement, uh, affecting things that would increase uh, human moral capacities. And a, a related conversation in academic circles is whether or not uh, you could engineer virtue uh, than using biotechnology like uh, CRISPR gene editing. And that's a question we'll come to uh, at the very end after we sort of talk about uh, genetic and non-genetic 
uh, ways of talking about moral enhancement. So the basic question we have that sounds very simple is, can we enhance human moral capacities? And that seems like a pretty straightforward question. Um, you know, humans have uh, changed and advanced as a species, uh, and that includes moral decisions. There are things now that we consider to be abhorrent or impermissible that were allowed previously. And you could argue that that kind of advancement could be a form of enhancement. But I think what's a little more complicated is that we're trying to do this through uh, gene editing, or we're asking whether or not this can be done through gene editing. And so I think that if we're going to approach that question, there are certain underlying issues, uh, either assumptions that we have to make or things that we have to work through. Um, and so the, the framework uh, of this talk then will work through these five uh, issues uh, or assumptions, because some of them I think are more assumptions than issues. Um, and then we'll conclude with a discussion about returning to that question of engineering virtue and then possible new virtues for transhumanists and posthumanists. So these five underlying issues, uh, the first of which is what, we may, what may we assume regarding genetic inheritance and human nature? Uh, two, can specific genes predispose behavior related to the moral virtues? Three, what kind of genetic enhancement would be useful for moral enhancement? Four, should there be a distinction between somatic and germline modification? And five, is genetic modification the best approach to moral enhancement? So we'll work through these uh, in order because I do think they build off of one another. So if we're, if we're going to bring virtue into the conversation, uh, virtue ethics is a method of ethics that's primarily focused on being rather than doing. Not to say that, that deliberating about specific action is unimportant, of course it's, it's necessary, but the focus is really on character formation. And the virtues themselves are stable dispositions of character that you create over time through habituation. So it's a metaphor of weightlifting. If you go to the gym and you lift weights, you're going to build those muscles. Those muscles are going to become stronger. And if you stop exercising, those muscles are going to atrophy. So similarly, we can think of virtues in, in, a, in a similar kind of way through metaphor that you become just, uh, you become more just, sorry, not most just there, um, by doing just things. And as you do that, uh, you habituate uh, this disposition towards justice. And then whatever situation you find yourself in, you're more likely to act in a just way. And so the idea with virtue ethics then is that you're building these dispositions that can help you in any situation. And hopefully you need less deliberation because you've already habituated being just, being courageous, being temperate. Um, so the good in this sense is tied to human nature, that these, these dispositions come from who we are as individuals and as a species. So again, this virtue is tied to a normative sort of understanding of human nature. Um, so in order for moral enhancement to occur through gene editing, uh, you have to accept that genetic inheritance is a part of your philosophical or your theological anthropology. Uh, so in other words, and this is a quote from a, a, a book chapter that I've contributed to here, uh, the underlying anthropology needs to allow for, for change to occur through evolution and genetic inheritance, which is not a problem for transhumanists and posthumanists because that's essential to their project. If change wasn't possible, you couldn't talk about having a posthuman species. Uh, but this is uh, 
a more of a concern for uh, Christian perspectives. If you're trying to work from a, let's say, a creationist perspective where every species is was created the way that it is now, 6,000 years ago, you can't really talk about um, gene editing in that case. Because if human nature is static, uh, if you don't allow for evolution or genetic drift, then modification through gene editing is not going to be possible. So already we have to work out of a certain sort of framework, uh, anthropologically speaking, uh, philosophically or theologically, uh, in order to even move this conversation forward. So we might say, okay, well, if change happens, how do we ever get speciation then? How do we move from one species to another? How would we move from the human to the post-human? And that's a great question. Uh, especially because scientists don't agree on the definition of species. Uh, you know, you get a bunch of biologists in a room and you ask them to find a species, you're going to get a lot of different definitions. Um, so a default that I sort of use is just um, uh, reproductively compatible populations. So if you're able to successfully have offspring that are able to have offspring, uh, then the members, those people, those individuals are part of the same species. Um, so if we're making changes, if we're enhancing abilities, we're adding new traits, uh, do these results uh, create a new being or new beings? Uh, or is it a different enough way of interacting with the world that you would have a new telos or end or purpose for humanity? Or uh, as Brian Green, uh, another technology ethicist at Santa Clara would say, is this just plain old humans actualizing latent uh, potencies? And so Brian talks about uh, work that's been done historically about the difference between first nature and second nature and how first nature, our biological nature has remained fairly unchanged for modern humans. I mean, we're, we're taller than we have been previously. Uh, but a lot of that, uh, from the 16 and 1700s through now was through nutrition. And there actually is some evidence that at least in certain countries, perhaps Sweden, that we've maybe reached our genetic peak of what, uh, human height is currently capable of. Um, but that doesn't necessarily fundamentally change the way in which humans have interacted with the world. Um, but what has changed greatly is second nature, and that includes culture and technology. And yet we still consider humans today as homo sapiens sapiens, even though we've been to the moon, we've created nuclear weapons that can destroy all life as we know it. And yet we still consider ourselves similar enough to, uh, you know, early uh, Homo sapiens sapiens several hundred thousand years ago. Um, so, uh, question could be a question I often posit in classes would say, let's say that we're uh, one and a half times tall as we are now on average, that we're five times more intelligent than we than we are currently, and we're ten times as strong. Is that fundamentally different way of of interacting with the world, and does that create a new end, or are we still working in a human framework? And I think at some point we're going to say this is different enough that there is something new. Um, and I think the clearest way of, of doing that is uh, post-humans that would, that would abandon bodies altogether. If we're exi existing as a digital consciousness on the internet, um, that's certainly a different way uh, of being. It's completely different than what we're used to now. And so that would clearly be uh, a dividing line. But I think we're going to have to look individually at, uh, case by case as to whether or not certain changes create enough change to, to think about being uh, a new species or not. And with that, you're also going to see uh, new virtues. 
So there are virtues that humans share with other animals and even plants. Uh, we might talk about vegetative growth, reproduction. These are things that all life has. Uh, and there are certain virtues that we might share with social animals. But we also have some things that might be distinct to us, perhaps because of our, our reason. Although scientists continue to, to challenge this idea of humans having anything that is uh, necessarily distinct from other species. But if we have a new post-human species or more than one post-human species, it's possible then that we would have new virtues. Again, because these virtues are tied to uh, our understanding of that normative human nature or post-human nature. So if we've established uh, that, um, that human nature or nature in general is malleable enough to accept change, then the next question comes is, are genes relevant uh, for the discussion of uh, more changing moral behavior, either through the virtues or through um, characters or characteristics or predispositions, things like that. So we're not we're not talking about genetic determinism. Uh, genes don't make decisions; people do, persons do. Uh, but genes do contribute to our behavior. We have predispositions towards certain things. Uh, we're more likely to do. Uh, to act in a certain way or to, to have uh, the chemical balance of our bodies be a particular way and what's different and that's individual so you know gene expression is there is a genome but there that is expressed differently in each person because of this uh, uh, because of our genetic makeup there are different alleles so we, we we both maybe share a gene for eye color but there are going to be different alleles that allow somebody to have brown eyes versus somebody to have green eyes um, and that makes a difference and we'll come back to that later and that actually makes a difference for virtue as well but even if there is a genetic uh, basis for something it doesn't mean that it's necessarily 100 percent uh, heritable so intelligence is something that long people have wanted to to try and identify what are the genetic links for intelligence and research now is maybe showing us that about 50 percent of what we consider intelligence might be inherited and have a genetic basis uh, but that means that half as much, again, is up to uh, what we might call nurture in the nature versus nurture uh, conversation or environment or training, education. And that'll become important when we look at the, the final question about whether or not gene editing is the best approach. So again, this is less of a concern for uh, transhumanists or posthumanists, uh, because if if you're doing things like adding artificial things to the body or giving up the body completely, gene editing is not your only tool. Um, so there could be a lot of ways to make uh, changes, brain computer interfaces, implants, they could produce new traits, allow us to do things that we currently can't do. And that doesn't necessarily then depend on uh, us having a gene or a predisposition towards a certain kind of behavior. Uh, if we're going to artificially um, introduce that into uh, the human body. So the third uh, question here is, okay, gene editing, well, human nature is malleable and genes can make a difference in our behaviors. So then specifically, what kinds of uh, genetic changes would be useful for moral enhancement? And so uh, for this discussion, I'm gonna focus on the cardinal virtues, uh, courage, justice, temperance, and prudence. And then and some other places I write about um, the traits of intelligence, empathy, and memory. And we'll, we'll dabble in those a little bit. Um, 
So we're going to go back and forth sort of between genetic and non-genetic changes that could lead to moral enhancement uh, for the for the four moral virtues or cardinal virtues. So uh, we'll start with one, uh, courage, and the genetic link there that um, we can think about, uh, that at least I've, I've tried to do some research in what scientists are currently looking at in terms of these topics. Uh, and so to me, risk-taking uh, is one of these things. So if courage is uh, the mean between uh, the the vice of the excess of courage would be recklessness, having too much courage and running out into to battle, being reckless, not waiting for the rest of the uh, the company to come with you, or the deficiency of that would be cowardice. So uh, risk taking could play a could play a role in your decision making about whether or not to act courageously. So if we're looking for genetic uh, links for this. Uh, Scientists have found that people that have the short, short combination of alleles for the 5-HTT-LRP gene, that they are 20% less likely to take risks than the average person. Uh, and then on the flip side, uh, for people that have the 7-repeat allele of the D4 dopamine receptor gene, uh, DRD4, uh, they are 25% more likely uh, to take risks or 25% more risky than the than the average amount of risk. So if you wanted to to make somebody more courageous, you could perhaps modify uh, the short short combination, the allele to a different one, uh, meaning that person then is going to be more likely uh, to take risks or be more on average on the amount of taking risks. So you could do you could change that by eliminating the one that uh, reduces people taking risk, or you could also uh, edit in the, the seven repeat allele of DRD4, which would then increase uh, risk taking. But again, a virtue is a mean between this excess and deficiency. Um, so, uh, you know, if you, you don't want it to go too far in one direction, uh, that there is a, there is a, so too much of a good thing, let's say, uh, you know, Aristotle would argue. Um, and if we want to look at non-genetic uh, perspectives or ways of doing this. Uh, first thing that would come to mind is education and that there are, there's a lot of uh, virtual reality training that's done currently to reduce uh, acrophobia, uh, fear of heights. And that's actually one of the predominant methods of treating uh, acrophobia right now is to put people in a VR environment and get them used to, to seeing realistic landscapes, but not in a place where they're going to be uh, in any sort of danger. Um, and then there could be ways of, of modifying your body chemistry. So you could increase adrenaline, you could uh, pump chemicals that uh, uh, increase reaction time, uh, increase our strength. Uh, and these could be sort of added as needed, injected right into the bloodstream or another delivery method, sort of like an insulin pump that when we want this, when we want to, to do these things, we can then uh, release these, these chemicals into our body, uh, change how we are in the moment and that wouldn't be a permanent genetic change. It would sort of be a, a hormonal change, a, a chemical change, uh, mostly through the use of pharmaceuticals. Uh, so justice, the virtue of giving people what they're due with the, uh, the deficiency of that being greed, selfishness, and the excess of that being self-abrogation. And that it's, you are also owed what you are owed. And if you, if you're willingly giving it up or sacrificing that too much, that that is uh, that would be an excess of justice. 
And so the genetic link we could talk about there would be uh, fairness and empathy. And so if we come back to the, the DRD4 gene, it turns out that there's a variant that affects um, understandings of fairness. So people that have the full repeat allele of the DRD4 gene, uh, which is a 48 base pair VNTR uh, variant is what they call it. Uh, individuals with that uh, report have higher self-reported scores on altruism and they have lower tendencies towards aggression. And the way that this is scored is typically through uh, economic game theory games uh, that are done either, um, you know, online or in person. Uh, and these, the most popular of these are often public goods games or what's called an ultimatum game. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because that there are scholars that, that disagree whether or not this is a, an accurate or a fair way of understanding altruism or fairness. Uh, the argument there is that um, these games are not necessarily universal and the kinds of interactions that happen in these are not necessarily uh, found in every culture. And they, they try and find, um, they've tried to identify places where this doesn't seem to be the norm. And there are, there seem to be cultures where there are differences within the population. And some of those differences come from uh, people that have more money have tended to interact with people outside of the culture more and maybe have brought some of these ideas in. So um, while this does seem to be uh, genetically related, there is sort of a question about whether or not um, the methods of determining uh, altruism may not be uh, universal. So I, wanna, I do want to give a caveat for this particular example. Um, and then for empathy, uh, they've done studies using the DNA from, uh, from people who have signed up for 23andMe, the uh, gene sequencing company that can tell you about your diet, you know, what things you're sensitive to or uh, who you're related to. They actually reserve the right to use that information in scientific research. Um, and they found that about a third of your empathy uh, has genetic basis. And they found maybe about 11 places on the genome where that could be possible, but they have yet to specifically identify um, individual or genes or alleles that uh, that would apply to empathy. But if they do, then the modification of those to increase empathy uh, could help uh, in terms of um, moral enhancement and justice. So if we turn to, to non-genetic examples, um, again, we have ed education and particularly about uh, learning about other people, other cultures, other, other ways of being in the world, uh, and also about bias. Um, you could argue that intelligence would help here, but it's not intelligence alone in that it turns out that it takes intelligence and perspective taking uh, to really make a difference in, um, uh, in changing moral behavior. So uh, intelligence alone, increased intelligence doesn't necessarily make a person more empathetic or more moral, but combining that with perspective taking, uh, that does make a difference. And some people could say that we could maybe circumvent uh, human bias altogether by trying to appeal to AI. So there have been uh, algorithms for criminal sentencing uh, to try and take bias out of the legal system. Uh, but the data is showing us right now that uh, that bias is actually currently being passed on. And that could be either because of the data set has been, there's uh, racism built into that data set already. Uh, it could be inadvertently uh, the people that are programming it um, are uh, including some of their own unconscious bias. There's a lot of reasons, but unfortunately, um, 
AI is not as objective as we would like it to be yet and uh, may not be uh, for a while. Uh, so temperance, uh, the cardinal virtue about bodily pleasures, uh, you know, food, drink, sex, those kinds of things. Uh, genetic link for the for that we could talk about um, hunger, uh, BMI, body mass index, uh, alcoholism, a number of things. So I, I just tried to pull out a couple examples that seem to be um, uh, fairly easy to explain. So in terms of satiation, feeling satiated after you eat, um, they found that there are sort of uh, two genes that uh, correlate to higher levels of BMI. Um, and so there's the, the DRD2 gene, which is, you know, similar to the DRD4, but this a different gene. Um, and that people that have the TAC1A1 allele of the DRD2 gene have higher levels of BMI. Um, and then when you combine that with uh, looking at another gene, the LEPR gene, that people that have the TAC1A1 allele and uh, the LIS109R allele of the LEPR gene those individuals had the highest uh, level of BMI, and it, it seemed to be, um, there seemed to be an additive effect that when they had both of those, the, the, the level was much higher than otherwise. Uh, so if you were even, even able to change one of those, it would lower, uh, theoretically lower people's BMI by helping them feel more uh, satisfied uh, when eating or after eating and therefore consuming fewer calories. Um, there are other things, uh, leptin, ghrelin, there are lots of uh, hormones and proteins in the body that uh, deal with these. And so there could be a lot of uh, examples of this looking forward. Um, but this was just one specific example that, that these two seem to have an additive effect. Uh, so trying to disrupt that alone could make a difference. Uh, and then similarly to uh, intelligence, uh, they believe that uh, alcoholism is believed to be about 50% genetic. And while there aren't specific genes identified, um, serotonin receptors and genes that regulate uh, uh, gamma amniobutyric acid uh, are believed to play a role. So again, if we can try and change those, if they turn out to be um, a genetic locus of where things happen, uh, disrupting that then could allow people to have a little more control over um, uh, deliberation. This is then to say that this is, uh, again, this is not completely... Um, genetic determinism, but these do affect the way in which people feel and think and experience and have a have an impact on uh, their deliberative process, especially when it comes to their appetites. Uh, and so if we look at non-genetic ways of looking at this, uh, there are lots of diet plans and supplements that claim that they're uh, supposed to help people with these sorts of things. Uh, research is coming out that if we're if we try to use uh, oxytocin as an inhaled spray, that it seems that if you do that, if you give that to individuals that it disrupts the reward cycle um, in the brain from uh, feeling good after eating uh, high calorically uh, dense foods. Um, so if you're able to disrupt that, then it's gonna again, allow people to not be overwhelmed by that urge to want to consume uh, high caloric things that in the past were great for us because food was scarce and we needed it. Uh, but now in food abundance in general on a global scale, not that there isn't hunger, but uh, we, on average, people do, uh, if there's not hunger somewhere that people do tend to overconsume, consume. Uh, and part of that is because we have this 
genetic tendency towards foods that um, are calorically dense. Um, you might have seen uh, there have been more, more and more attention given to things like uh, continual glucose monitors, uh, little uh, patches you can put on your arm that in, uh, will allow you to use your, your smartphone to check your blood glucose levels. And a lot of people who are interested in uh, you know, body chemistry, how, how they react to food, things like that, they can eat a meal and then two hours later uh, see how their blood glucose levels have changed after eating something in particular. Uh, and that gives people more information and then more power in uh, decisions about what they eat. Um, potentially, we could do away with it uh, with the idea of temperance at all if we have artificial stomachs that uh, could completely control how much, uh, how many calories or how much of a, a particular kind of food is is allowed into the body at any given point. Uh, and then, if we have mind uploading, uh, if we have no body, uh, there may not be a need for or for food or drink or any of the other things that temperance involves with. Um, so getting a little more speculative here, but it's possible that we might engineer ourselves out of uh, a need for, uh, for temperance. Uh, and then the uh, fourth uh, cardinal virtue here, prudence, um, deliberation of practical matters. Um, the genetic link we might see here is intelligence, but it's also everything that we've mentioned uh, up to this point. So any gene that can affect cognitive ability could help in terms of moral enhancement. Um, that's going to help you be able to deliberate better. But if we also increase our empathy, if we have a better regulation on our bodily desires, all of those things also allow us to uh, to be able to deliberate uh, better. You know, if we're hungry, um, we're going to make better decisions. I mean, it, it sounds simple, but a lot of people say don't go to the grocery store hungry because um, uh, you've been, you know, you're more likely to to indulge and buy things that are not necessarily what you're looking for or uh, choices you would make if you if you were already satiated. Um, so uh, those are all ways in which prudence can be affected by the other virtues. Uh, and then non-genetic ways of looking at this, uh, we have things that, again, uh, increasing intelligence, empathy, and memory. If you're able to to draw from a wider level of experiences, um, that's going to be able to help you uh, deliberate better as well. Uh, educating your training, something as simple as doing the crossword daily to to keep your mind active, that can be considered a form of of training. Um, uh, computer brain interfaces like uh, Elon Musk's uh, Neuralink, uh, and the idea here is that maybe you could draw upon the memories of other people, experience of other people, to help in uh, your own. Uh, moral deliberations. And then uh, DARPA, uh, a government agency has been doing work in the US has been doing work on uh, prosthetic memory implants, and they've been able to, to show about a 35% increase in uh, short term memory by using these um, uh, external memory uh, devices. So uh, we'll move to the fourth question now and to uh, whether or not um, we should have a difference between somatic and germline modification. Uh, so basic definitions here, somatic cell edit, uh, editing would be changes in the cells of an individual uh, that's not going to be passed on if they have children, if they reproduce. Um, so if we, if we modify the cells in the pancreas to, to produce insulin again, that's not necessarily going to pass on to somebody. So that would be treating a particular disease or something in an individual. Um, Germline editing, though, is altering the DNA of the cells that create our reproductive cells, our gametes, egg and sperm, 
and that changes there would be passed on uh, to future generations. And that sort of across the globe, we see heavy restrictions on germline editing right now, uh, only only allowed in limited places and usually only for what they consider compelling uh, purposes, where there's maybe no other way to treat a particular condition. Um, Long-term consequences of this kind of gene editing aren't aren't known right now. There's a lot of unknown questions. So uh, many want to proceed with cautionary, use the precautionary principle um, and say, well, let's, let's wait until uh, we can establish um, a better understanding of safety and things like that. Uh, but in China, in late uh, 2019, uh, He Jiankui uh, used CRISPR uh, gene editing to modify twin embryos of, of two girls uh, to try and give them resistance to um, the HIV. Um, these embryos were implanted, carried to term. In fact, the parents weren't told that CRISPR gene editing was done. They were told that this was in vitro fertilization. Um, there were a number of, of unethical things that he did. Um, he took time off from his regular work uh, and did this work uh, in a hospital. Um, yeah, just a lot of issues. And so he uh, was sentenced to three years in prison and was released in uh, early April of this year. Um, and as far as we know, that's, that's I mean, that's been the biggest uh, example of this, whether or not it's happened since then, it's unclear and whether or not we'll ever get um, sort of ongoing medical information about these twins is probably uh, unknown. But I think a lot of scientists would be curious to see what other sort of unintended effects would happen because it turns out that uh, the genes, the gene that he particularly tried to edit might also have, um, make a difference in short-term memory as well. And it turns out that the, the penetrance of the CRISPR gene editing was pretty low, about 30 to 33% of the cells, uh, had the change. And of course that's, we're, we're going to want something that's much higher if we want to make a change throughout the entire, uh, individual. So again, we're not really at a point where this is germline editing is viable going forward, but um, uh, there are some that argue that we should be doing germline editing because it's easier uh, to treat certain diseases that way, especially single gene diseases, and you could more rapidly uh, eliminate those diseases if we modified the germline. So the idea here would be to treat the source, not the individual. So things like Huntington's disease, uh, Duchenne's muscular dystrophy, things like that, uh, if we were to modify people's uh, germline and uh, eradicate those single gene diseases, we can sort of eliminate them from the population. But again, we're not sure about uh, the long-term effects. So to use a, another metaphor quickly here, I want to say that, um, you know, things like education, training, and non-invasive forms of enhancement that we've mentioned so far, I would say these are more similar to, to somatic cell gene editing and that these are maybe reversible, um, these are things that individuals can choose to do that are going to have varying amounts of impact uh, and won't be passed on uh, to future generations. Uh, cybernetic implants are sort of maybe in between somatic and germline, um, you know, uh, could be restricted just to an individual, but things could also be passed on. And particularly if you're thinking about uh, brain computer interfaces and if they can store memory, then maybe your memories could be passed on uh, to to loved ones or to uh, for research purposes, uh, educational purposes. Um, so I think that's uh, sort of existing in a in an in between state. And then mind uploading, I think, is sort of um, metaphorically like germline editing in the sense that this is a permanent 
uh, change that it is in scope well beyond uh, somatic and the other types of uh, modification we're talking about here. This is a, a major transformation. So uh, human nature is malleable. Uh, genes can affect our behavior, and we've even tried to identify specific genes that relate to the virtues. Um, so the question is, is gene editing the best way to approach moral enhancement? Uh, CRISPR is more precise and less expensive than earlier forms of genetic engineering, but are we at the point where we still want that to be the primary source of moral enhancement? Uh, again, a lot of the uh, examples we've looked at are 50% genetically influenced at best, and sometimes a third, 28%, 25%, uh, which means that you know the environment or other factors play at least a 50% role, if not more. And so if, uh, if that's the case, should resources in, in, the, in the form of time or money, uh, should they be allocated to other methods that potentially could have a greater impact then? Um, and again, for transhumanists and posthumanists, not necessarily a, a problem because if they really want to bring about change, you would think that they would want to use any tool that they have at their disposal, not just gene editing. Um, so I think there are tangible reasons why we might want to say uh, we might want to to look at other ways of of talking about moral enhancement that aren't necessarily uh, gene editing. So uh, quickly speaking here, uh, can we engineer virtue? Uh, short answer for me is moral enhancement by increasing human moral capacities. Yes, engineering virtue. No, and I would say that increasing human moral capacities could lead to more moral individuals and perhaps even a more moral society but it doesn't mean that those individuals or society would necessarily be more virtuous. Now you might stop and you might think that sounds wrong. That feels counterintuitive. That seems like a contradiction, but again, it's because of the definition of a virtue. The virtue is a stable disposition of character acquired through habituation. And it's a mean between a vice of deficiency and a vice of excess. But I don't want you to think about it like a number line. Uh, courage is not number five for everybody on a scale of zero to 10. Uh, the mean for each person, the virtue for each person is distinct and it takes into account um, their own internal dispositions, their own, uh, you know, genetic lottery to use Rawls's terms. Um, so giving a talk in front of an audience could be courageous for somebody who gets nervous uh, and doesn't like attention, but it might not be for courageous for somebody who craves a spotlight or finds it easy to be in front of people and talk. Um, so increasing moral capacities raises the bar of what people are capable of, morally speaking, and that also then increases the mean uh, or the virtue, uh, the definition of what the virtue is. So even as we increase our moral capacity, that doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to be more virtuous. In some ways, it just actually makes the virtue, um, raises the, the standard for a virtue and maybe makes it harder to obtain. And then again, just to, to finish up here, if uh, we want to talk about uh, new virtues, because again, if we're changing our human nature and our telos, our purpose, then new virtues could appear. And I would argue that maybe we should think about two virtues, uh, coexistence and compatibility. So coexistence could be here allowing other species to live as they see best. So if we have people that are twice as smart as we are, five times as smart as we are, it's going to be easy for them to say, well, we know better, we're smarter, you know, they're going to think themselves superior or better. And so we want to, to, um, we want coexistence to be in between 
the excess of power, power which would be in tyranny here, and the deficiency of it, which would be complicit, uh, capitulation or subservience. And then for compatibility, this would be about connection between, uh, you know, relationships or physical connections and transferring data, things like that, between organisms. And so a deficiency of compatibility would be a proprietary, proprietary, uh, proprietary technology that wouldn't allow you to connect to anybody, uh, anybody else, and that would lead to isolation. And then the excess of that would be everybody having exactly the same, and that would be assimilation, that there's too much connection or there's too much uniformity or a lack of diversity or individuality. Uh, and then finally, I would say that uh, out of the kinds of enhancements that are out there, uh, if transhumanists and posthumanists are serious about enhancement contributing to making society better, uh, I believe that we should prioritize moral enhancements because that is going to, to make a difference uh, for individuals and society. Whereas something like increasing a person's strength or increasing longevity of a person's life is more likely to serve the individual uh, than uh, society. So uh, thanks for the opportunity and uh, for your attention.